Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column, Hear, Hear, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, the Guardian's regular gaze into the decidedly cloudy crystal ball of Brexit. We return this week with no apology to a subject that it's often easy to lose sight of amid all the talk around Westminster of possible government U-turns on customs unions or continuing absence of even the slightest sign of progress on the Irish border. And that is the rights of the three million EU citizens living in the UK. As much as it is about big concepts like trade and the economy and Britain's place in the world, Brexit is about real people whose lives it will affect and is indeed already affecting. Now, shortly before we recorded this episode, staff from the British Home Office were in Brussels, presenting to European Parliament MEPs the new app that they hope European Union nationals will be able to use to register their settled status. The Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, has claimed that it's been extensively tested and that registering would be as easy to do as, and I quote, shopping, presumably online this is, at LK Bennett. That's a relatively posh frock shop favoured by the likes of Kate Middleton and Margaret Thatcher, for anyone unfamiliar with it. But the online application process, and indeed the whole immigration apparatus of the Home Office, has come under intense scrutiny, following the shocking revelations mainly as a result of some amazing reporting by my Guardian colleague Amelia Gentleman of its scandalous treatment of the so-called Windrush generation, people who arrived from the Caribbean to help rebuild post-war Britain and who now, despite sometimes 50 years of residents in the UK paying their taxes, paying national insurance, have found themselves locked out of jobs, homes and health treatment because they could not evidence their legal right to be in the country. 
Now, it's safe to say that this shameful episode has not gone unnoticed in Brussels, which was already shocked by the treatment of dozens of EU citizens who have tried to apply for permanent residency in the UK since the Brexit vote. And Brussels will need a fair bit of convincing if it is to be persuaded that European Union nationals are not at some future stage likely to find themselves being treated in similar fashion to the Windrush generation after Brexit. With me to discuss this are in the studio Lisa O'Carroll, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent who broke many of those stories about EU nationals' problems in Britain. And on the line from Newcastle, Tanya Bultman, who is a professor of history at Northumbria University, but equally importantly, a particularly eloquent and vocal campaigner for EU citizens' post-Brexit rights. Welcome to both of you. Let's start with you, Tanya, if I may. Uh, I'm just interested here, really. I mean, watching this ongoing Windrush saga unfold, what were and what are your feelings? I mean, what, what do you think it says in, I mean, in general terms, really, first of all, about the home office, the way the Home Office works, its actual practice, and secondly, about the British government's underlying attitude to, to immigration? My feelings really come, I suppose, from three angles, just as a human being, you know, the treatment of fellow human beings in this very shameful way is something I have a big problem with and cannot comprehend, but also from a professional perspective as a historian of migration and empire. I guess I'm looking at this in terms of some of the things we've learned about the records being destroyed of these arrivals and and those kinds of issues. And then, of course, as an EU citizen, which is, I guess, what the question primarily relates to, my immediate feelings there were of um, shock, uh, of course, about the treatment, which is just shameful and terrible. But really also, um, at the end of the day, to me, it was tragically just a confirmation in some respects about the things that we have talked about for, uh, well, over two years now, really, because some of those discussions started before uh, the Brexit vote even took place, given the question of what might happen to us was raised um, before then. Confirmation about some of the wider attitudes towards immigration in this country, but also really about the practices of the hostile environment that this government is pursuing. And then in this context, obviously, the Home Office's actual practice of dealing with people, which we have now seen is indeed, you know, very shameful with letters being sent out again to people who really have a right to be here. You know, that's the underlying problem. These are people who for decades have lived in the UK, have paid tax here, have contributed to this country every single day of their lives, yet their status here is being questioned. And that is not dissimilar, I think, to a situation that EU citizens might find themselves in, some of whom have lived here before the UK ever became the member of anything to do with the EU or its predecessors. So it tells us a lot about that, and it tells us a lot about the underlying attitudes towards immigration, because this is part of this obsession, really, with bringing numbers down, clearly. And um, the you know people who are legally here, who have lived here all their lives, are caught up in this now. And, and so for you, you see in the, the sort of Windrush episode and also in the way that the, the EU citizens are being have been treated up until now, a kind of logical continuation of this, this, this whole hostile environment. Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting to see, I think, when this scandal really erupted, thanks to the excellent reporting from the Guardian reporters, which was good in that sense to bring that all out. But since then, obviously, discussions have been a lot more public and and in wider um, range of outlets as well that many people were very surprised apparently by this. Well, I wasn't surprised at all. We have seen this for years. The difference is that now it affects a particular group of people who all happen to have come kind of through the same route. So that obviously makes it different. 
in that respect. And, you know, I would argue these are people who are British and there shouldn't really be any question about anything to do with their status. That also is a difference to EU citizens, I think is fair to say. But the general underlying narratives around immigration, they are not new at all. We have seen this for years. We have learned about so-called home office errors of deportation letters sent to many people. There are cases in the media occasionally of people who are being deported. And it's good that those cases are reported, but they are the tip of the iceberg. There are many people who sit in detention centers, and I think some of them for reasons that are, well, questionable at best, really. And so this is a story that doesn't just, you know, go back to last week. It doesn't go back to early this year. It doesn't go back to 2016. It goes back much longer than that, uh, certainly to uh, Theresa May picking up as Home Secretary. But actually, to be fair, even before that, there are questions about uh, various governments and their attitudes towards immigration. Mm. Okay, so you clearly have serious doubts about how this is all going to end. Now, Lisa, over the past year, you've written a lot um, about EU citizens in the UK, including some shocking cases of people caught up in situations really not very dissimilar um, from those of the Windrush generation. So, you know, was this a bit of a case of deja vu for you, um, seeing these, these, these stories come out? Do you share Tanya's conclusions about about the British government's attitudes to, to immigration and the way the, the, the Home Office implements those, those political decisions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the EU citizens, I spoke to Nicola Atten, um, the co-founder of the Three Million, um, last week at the peak of this Windrush scandal, and he said, you know, we've been campaigning and banging on about this for the last two years, and nobody's, nobody's listening. We're n- not, quite, not quite so. The reporting that we did did get the attention mm. of people in Brussels, of people in the European Parliament, we know the Guardian has had some impact, but not in a way that the Windrush um, story has had. And Amelia Gentleman, who's led the reporting on this, says herself that, you know, she had been reporting on this for the last six months and nobody really was paying any attention to put a call into the Home Office and it'd be, uh, you get a gener- general statement back, but there was no political buy-in to it. Well, a question can be asked is, what changed to make this such a big political scandal? But the real question is, will anything change in, in future? the future? Yeah. Um, and this, uh, at the heart of this is the hostile environment policy that was introduced in 2014 and 2016, um, where the state uses uh, institutions, private and public, to implement its um, immigration policy. So it uses not just HMRC, but driving license, DVLA can cancel your license. Mm-hmm. The Department of Work Pensions will, if, if there's an immigration order against you, will cancel whatever benefits you're on. It might be child benefit, it might be disability benefit. And employers um, are also obliged to make sure that everybody they employ are legally in the country. Um, if they don't, they can face 20,000 20, pound fines. Um, the legislation also requires landlords to make sure that their tenants are legally in the country and face 5,000 pound pound fines. Um, I think that information generally isn't known. And that the, what's really interesting to me following the Brexit story is that the Windrush scandal really is a really, really useful comparator for EU citizens. Now it's out in the open. Mm. Everybody knows about the hostile environment policy, which interestingly has been rebranded. Yesterday I noticed in, in the House, House of Commons by Amber Rudd as the compliance environment, not the hostile <laughs> environment. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's awful what a, has a happened, but it's very, very lesson. useful yeah. for EU citizens that this has come out now so close to the rollout of a new registration process for a questionable settled status. Exactly. Well, that's, well that takes us, brings us on very nicely to the next point. Tanya, the, the, this, the, the government's then, with the proposed, this proposed settled status for EU 
citizens uh, that Lisa's just referred to. Now, you you have questions, I know, about the whole concept of settled status. Could you sort of fill us in a little bit on those? I mean, you argue, as far as I, I understand, that it's not really a question of status at all, nor actually is it about registration, but it's kind of an application process that by its very nature is going to end up costing people some of their rights and and excluding some of them altogether. What are your objections to the, to the, to the, to the concept? Yeah, I mean, you've explained that very well. Thank you uh, very much. <laughs> I mean, if, if it was about securing our status, there would have been a really straightforward way to do that. One person, Theresa May or David Cameron, could have just said, your status is secure. So clearly, it's not about that at all. It is about um, making us apply for status, partly because they don't actually know who we are. You know, records, while some of them are quite useful for anyone in employment, say they don't have lists of people, they don't have details of EU citizens to that level necessarily in the UK. I think that's one problem. So in a sense, we're having to help out, really, by providing some of those details, certainly some of us who are not in these kinds of records necessarily. So that's part of the problem. It's not really about that, to my mind, therefore, about the status recognition, because that could have been achieved more easily. But in that um, process, then, it isn't just a registration either, which might be questionable enough already. It is really something for which we have to apply the status of settled status. And through the process, we will lose some rights, uh, rights by the way um, it looks at the moment. Now, there's still some questions about what exactly that's going to be. But I believe yesterday at an event that was held for the French community, there were questions raised again, for example, about the right to vote in local elections. And there are many other issues, rights and, uh, you know, simple things that we can do now that we might not be able to do in future. So obviously that's something I have a big issue with because at the end of the day, we are all here legally now on the basis of a reciprocal right. That's something that is forgotten all the time. It's usually the case that EU nationals in the UK, it's sort of described as a one-way street. You know, we're all coming into the UK and that, that's that, when in actual fact, of course, Britons are also going into continental Europe um, because this is a reciprocal right. So actually they are as affected by this as well. Don't forget that. It isn't just about um, about us here. So that's that's a problem in that context then, in terms of recognition, what this actually means for people's lives. And casting it as a registration process, which most outlets seem to do, doesn't help with that because that sounds much nicer. You know, it sounds as if we just turn up somewhere, get registered, and that's that. But it isn't that. And the process around this is, of course, also a big problem potentially. So at the moment, the plan is that it's going to go through an app. Um, and we might come back to that later on because we've just heard that there are some issues uh, yes, with the with exactly. the app, certainly for me. Um, so that's a problem then, too, because, you know, again, you know, registration, maybe people think we have to just go to the city council or something and get a stamp and that's it. But that's not how it's going to be at all. There is a possibility that applications are going to be rejected. And that's, I guess, what you meant with leaving some by the wayside, perhaps altogether, because there might be people who just don't fit into some of the criteria. Think, for example, of someone whose records in the UK are not actually in their name, but maybe in the name of a former partner who just don't pop up in records or much more practically. And, you know, much of this might well be resolvable, but has anyone thought of this much more practically? What about some of the names? So in some countries in the EU, the order of names is different or they might have certain letters that don't exist in the UK. And sometimes we then sort of change some of that in records in the UK. So if records are being matched up, will that work? You know, all of that 
is resolvable, but as I say, has anyone actually thought about that? So it goes from such very practical points to the much more fundamental questions about some of those details about people's lives. To my mind, the simple conclusion to draw is they don't fit in an app. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about the app, um, because Lisa, you've been looking um, at that just uh, this afternoon. Could you tell us a little bit about it? For, I mean, first, in, in precisely in terms of those practicalities uh, that Tanya was, was just talking about, and what are people actually going to have to do? How is it intended to work? What might possible problems be? Well, I can. I was listening uh, uh, with intent there to so th- this question about people with funny characters and they in their names. Me with an apostrophe. I am very, very, very <laughs> familiar with even the Guardian's IT department has oh, got about go. three <laughs> different versions of my name. So my preferred spelling in all of uh, whether it's airlines or HMRC is no apostrophe because sometimes you say apostrophe and people go. What's that? Anyway, the latest news is uh, the Home Office have been out in Brussels. They have been uh, making a presentation which they had had vainly hoped to remain in camera with um, MEPs um, on this new app. There are some very funny uh, problems that have already emerged. Uh, One, that it doesn't fully work on the iPhone because the iPhone's near field communications that's that chip that allows contactless payment mm. when maybe you use your phone to get your coffee in the shop or on the um, oyster card reader on the mm. tube it doesn't work that's one thing amber rudd said that the app had been extensively tested yesterday which i found curious so i tweeted last night and asked was there anybody out there from an eu citizen who had been uh, in a user group i had a chat with somebody who was indeed in one of those user group um, just a few weeks ago and it does, It sounds like the, the actual app is still being tested. It's not a mass testing, it's just mm-hmm. the regular UX testing that any company, including the Guardian, who's developing technology will do. He raised this question about the iPhone reader so the app requires you to scan in the photograph page in your passport which has, has the biometric information. Mm-hmm. It then requires you to take a selfie um, and the system will automatically um, decide whether your picture now matches the one on your passport. I can see problems there. Mm-hmm. Uh, within 10 minutes, then, it will match up your information, your date of birth, etc., um, with your HMRC and your NI records, and it will tell you whether you're a yes or a no. Um, and the guy raised this question about the iPhone and uh, people who don't have smartphones. Many elderly people won't mm. have smartphones, and the, the response was, well, you can, get any, you can borrow somebody else's phone, which is exactly what the Home Office official said in Brussels as well, which um, has already created um, a bit of a storm on Twitter. So you can imagine, even at this early stage, they are still not grasping the fact that this is really, really politically sensitive. That it is and, of and, immense. And it's fundamentally important for three million people. It is. It is. And but 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 it's like you've got to, as Claude Moray, as the MEP said, you know, they have got to be observant of how many people are watching what's going on in light of the Windrush scandal. And clearly, they're not. So one tiny thing, even if, if it affects, like as my guy who've been at the user group thing, say it only affects a handful of people. There are only a handful of people who can't fill this in. That's still people's a handful of people people's lives who may be wrecked because what will happen is then it goes into the home office you've got to provide documentation to the home office and people don't trust the home office Um, and I think to pick up on Tanya's point about this registration process as uh, Andrew Tingley one of Mm. the Kingsley Napoli lawyers immigration lawyers who's been on this programme before said it said to me last week the hostile environment policy cannot work in a situation where you do not have ID cards. So if you don't know who the 60 million in your country are, how can you implement a hostile environment? It is fairly, it's um, designed to fail in a way. 
And while people are recognising the Home Office are, to their credit, trying to create a new system, you can't change the system if the culture is still the old system. So the app might work for whatever, 70, 67 percent, maybe. And the other 30 percent would go through the Home Office and the Home Office is prone to making mistakes. As we know. So, I, I mean, I foresee a disaster. Tanya, do you is that do you do you share that view? And and also, well, well, yeah, well, you know, what do you see as the problems with the with sort of the concrete problems with 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 the app? And also, Lisa mentioned their ID cards. You're a German citizen. You're presumably used to ID cards. Would you would you have a problem with with ID cards sort of a, 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 across the, the the country? And and might that be a p- potential solution at some stage? Well, maybe, yeah, let's start with that. Mm. I mean, as a German, I have no problem whatsoever with ID cards. I have one. I carry it very happily. I think the UK should have them because it does away with all the problems that you have in this country or I've had coming here, opening all sorts of things. You know, you always have to have various forms of IDs. Uh, that are to me very much, uh, if you wanted to think about it in terms of what could be forged, you know, much more forgeable as it were than other records. So I've never understood that in general. The issue is, of course, if you think about just IDing a specific group of people, then also looking at this from a German perspective, uh, you know, a whole range of alarm bells go off. And that essentially is what settled status will do for EU citizens, because that will then create essentially a special register for EU citizens, even if we don't have an ID card as such. You know, it will give that kind of uh, special status in a sense. And then, for example, as I said before, that landlords have to check. So if I wanted to rent a flat, I would have to get a special number that the landlord will then have to use to check against that special register for only a special group of people, as it were, EU citizens. So, you know, in all honesty, tell me someone, does that really not worry people that there is a special register with special numbers for a kind of special group of people who all happen to be foreign uh, to the UK? I mean, it really, it makes my head blow off almost. It will also mean, um, won't it, Tanya, that in that situation, landlords looking for a quick rental will will go Uh, to somebody who doesn't have that, don't need that paperwork. Yeah, so we talked before about, you know, who might be affected by this. This is sort of the second the second phase then. And I think, you know, even if, you know, if all, all else is equal or if, if someone is indeed looking to rent very quickly, they will not rent to that EU citizen. In fact, there even is then actually a differentiation with other immigrants because people with a visa, they would just have to show their passport. So you're actually creating kind of a tier within a tier almost um, or or class within a class of of citizens. And that is another thing we have warned about for a long time. So really, you know, all of this, it just confirms everything that we have said for two years when all the time we've been cast as scaremongerous, as hysterical. That's a term I have been, um, uh, you know, thrown at many times. So that's that's in that sense quite quite interesting. Now, more practically, now with the app news, I mean, my first reaction is, of course, well, thank you very much. I have an iPhone through <laughs> you, um, so I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to swear in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but swear um, away. <laughs> you know, it is it is the reality though, because these are you know probably around 3.7 million EU citizens, and you know I love the UK very dearly, but I cannot comprehend the apathy around what is being done to so many people now. So in that sense, Lisa is right to say. The Windrush scandal has kind of brought that out a little bit because people see that actually, yes, much of what we've said is true, but they're still not really making that connection that actually we're now looking at creating actively a new generation like that 
well, we're not creating it, the government is creating it through this process. Some people will fall through the cracks immediately because maybe they, they don't have the right gadget to do this or because they don't have the right records to do this. But there will potentially be you know, a later impact, either when the oversight from the European Court of Justice seizes or, uh, you know, even a bit further mm. down the line. So and it'll, suck, it'll of... suck people into, I mean, those that are not instantly, well, even those, I suppose, who are instantly approved by the app, if it ever actually, mm. you know, uh, mm. uh, 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 works properly. But certainly those that are rejected by it in the first instance are going to be sucked into presumably the same kind of, uh, uh, of home office bureaucracy um, yes. that people faced in, in, in yes. their permanent residency applications and the whole, the whole story of sort of, you know, 85 pages of, of well, I think it's worse. It's and... worse than that, John. It's worse because, um, because what happens to those people who are, you know, retired, who don't have documents, who feel they don't travel, they don't, don't need uh, documentation to get back into the country, this isn't for me, it's for the younger generation. Then 10 years down the line, they find themselves, they need an operation in the NHS, they've mm. got no proof that they are here. The hostile environment, like the, the Windrush mm. woman who got charged £33,000 mm. for past disability benefit, she had got in error a, a deportation letter following her operation um, on the NHS. So her disability, you know, all the hostile environment um, machinery just kicked into place. Yeah. I also think there are going to be problems for... Children, um, we know that children of two EU citizens aren't uh, automatically entitled to British citizenship, even if they're born here. Their parents will have to have been here five years before they were born. So they turn 18, they don't have any documentation. What do they do? So, you know, there are going to be heaps of people who are in these grey areas. And But I think more fundamentally, one of the key concerns, and um, Claude Marais has, has raised this today, is that because this registration process is developed as part of secondary legislation rather than primary le- legislation, it remains in the control of the Home Office. So it could be changed it at a It could be changed date. at a later stage. Let's say, as he points out, if there's a recession and suddenly there's an anti- a wave of anti-immigration um, feeling and somebody decides we need to get some of these immigrants out, we need to get some of these Eastern Europeans out. They could change the legislation without any scrutiny of Parliament. And the only way you can challenge that is in court, as I understand so I thought, I thought that's an interesting, you know, strategically, the government has has worked this so that it stays in the Home Office. It's not something that's open to public scrutiny and it's not transparent. So it haven't at, been transparent at some future it. stage, Tanya, the, the, the screws should, should, could, could simply be, be tightened then. I mean, I mean, given that, how does it make you feel if you, when you hear the government repeating ad infinitum that EU citizens' rights have been secured? And you can say happily in the UK in that knowledge. Well, um, you know, from day one, it was a lie. It is still a lie. I will never change my view on that. And the fact that the government goes around and keeps telling that to everyone is one thing and one thing only, simply disgusting. Um, and, you know, I have no time for that. And unfortunately, a lot of people have, you know, started to buy into that, um, partly because, of course, equally, unfortunately, the EU signed off certain agreements, which I think they shouldn't have signed off. Um, that hasn't helped. Uh, I can sort of, you know, understand in part perhaps why that happened, but it hasn't helped is a reality too. But yeah, I mean, everything that Lisa's just said is true and of course undermines that point completely because, I mean, for starters, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So this could still, even just in terms of the Brexit negotiations, blow up any minute and any time. And then, of course, we would be back at square one because Theresa May has repeatedly um, refused to... Um, agree to anything in the event of no deal or anything like that. But then uh, beyond that, of course, 
well, you know, there are all these various questions about transition periods and so on. So there would certainly be a lot of uncertainty in that period. And usually they also add this line about living your lives as you do now. That's what they say. Well, that is definitely also a lie because we already know that we will lose certain rights. Um, and again, to emphasize, considering we are all here legally now, that is just, you know, pretty much a sort of uh, a literal punch in the face uh, to me. But I also wanted to say in terms of people falling through, which, you know, makes this rhetoric of everything's fine even worse. Of course, that point of uh, application for settled status, if someone falls through, then there is a real possibility of deportation. Uh, you might also recall last week we heard this line again in the context of the Windrush scandal about deportation before an actual appeal is resolved. And that, of course, is a real threat, too, to people's lives if they might actually have to leave before any uh, anything is actually properly looked at. And to make matters worse, there's, of course, also um, new, uh, new plans for data protection restrictions for anyone in an immigration procedure. So you might not be able to ever find out to, what to the issue actually was. Yeah. Well, that's yes. a very, very fundamental point, and I think that absolutely has to be changed. Um, under the, these immigration proposals, the Home Office will not be obliged to share with you the data that they have used to, to reject to your, application. your application. So mm. it means you have no appeal because mm. you can't go to court because you've no evidence. Mm. Yeah. You don't it's have the evidence that they have. It's an extraordinary situation. Um, two final questions because we're running out of time. Um, Lisa, you wrote last week about a, a report that, that recommended that, you know, assuming that this is the process, contested as it is, but urging the government that it really had to get out and proactively publicise this whole process. How yeah, I'm, to, I'm, I'm, I'm told the plans at the moment are of, uh, uh, people who have been privy to what the Home Office thinking is, that they will have a hotline for people who aren't digitally savvy, that they will have people there who will type in applications for those people who can't use an app or can't use an online registration form. However, this report from um, a migration think tank in Brussels made the very good point that what they need to do, and they were really referring to British nationals and how EU states were way behind Britain, to give Britain its credit, on planning proposals for settled status in those other 27 countries. But what it said is they need to go out to the places where people are rather than wait for people to come to them. So, you know, go to pubs, they specified, pubs, clubs, hospitals, libraries, schools. schools. You know, you can think of all sorts, gyms, all sorts of places where... You might have incentives to get people to, uh, to sign up. I mean, I think they need to need to treat it like a uh, almost like a public health, health a public, public health, health claim, like yeah. HIV mm. um, in the eighties, where you are bombarded with adverts and you are left in no doubt that you have to do this because, after all, you have a lot of people in the country who won't be reading the British press and won't be watching the BBC News or ITV News, and they will be looking to their country's media for the best information um, and they will be relying largely I imagine on the NGO groups mm-hmm. like the Eastern European Resource Centre who has outreach programmes for Eastern European countries they won't you know mm-hmm. they need to be all everybody needs to be um, uh, included in this and I, I can't see that this this kind of one way communication will be 100% successful Okay Tanya last word to you if I if I can um, you're pretty much sort of out there on, on social media on marches you know when it comes up to, to standing up for EU citizens rights I'm interested just personally how you've found that how has it affected you do, do you th- I mean you said earlier you, you love Britain 
Do you think the referendum has kind of triggered something new or has it revealed or exaggerated something that was already there that you weren't aware of? Where, where does it come from and has it changed your feelings about this country? Well, I mean, I suppose it it was probably already there, given how quickly it arrived, as it were. Um, think back to the Olympics. That's not so long ago. And the sentiment in the country was very different. So I think it's it's more likely that some of those things were there. And if you look at the history of, of the UK and immigration into the country, you can see traces of this in the past. But I would argue that um, I think the financial crisis and this isn't specific to the UK, has created a climate where it's easier to establish this narrative of us and them to talk away some of uh, the issues that came out of that. And you will find this in other countries where this, you know, has also happened and does happen at the moment. It's just a very common technique to kind of stir certain sentiments. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. And politicians have exploited that, certainly Nigel Farage, but many others now as well, who we know keep uh, stirring this, commentators too. And this continues. I mean, just last week, for example, uh, Romanians were singled out repeatedly by a number of Brexiters and commentators, and that's just a disgusting thing to do. Eastern Europeans are subject to a lot of um, abuse and, and hate crimes more than others, I think, anyway. And then for that to happen, you know, it just stirs uh, the flames sort of further. Personally, I mean, I'm not sure that it has changed that much. I mean, if it had changed things very fundamentally, I probably would have left by now. You know, I still uh, love the UK very much, and I would say that's exactly why I'm doing what I do. I want the UK back that I fell in love with in the early uh, 1990s, please. And I know a lot of other people also uh, want that. Yeah, so I think it was there probably. um, But, you know, the Brexit vote now has kind of unleashed, I think, various new genies that won't just go back into the bottle um, because every day there's still going to be something that, uh, you know, helps to increase hatred further. Mm. Well, let's hope you find that Britain back then at some stage, Tanya. Well, Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That's about it for this week. I'm afraid my thanks to Tanya and Lisa for joining me today. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Memes, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.